Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, High Tales of History's Tall Tales. Each week, two sisters get together, get high, and like to surprise each other with stories from history. It's a casual hangout. Welcome to our smoke circle. I'm glad you're here. Welcome on in, everybody. It is episode 30, the big 3-0. I'm Laurel. Joined by Katie. We have a lot of fun for you today. I'm just going to say it. It's a lot of fun. No, no April fools, just fun. No fools, just fun. It sounds a little bit like a uh, restaurant chain slogan. I feel like Outback Steakhouse had something like that. It's like, no, oh, no rules, just right. That's that. Oh, yeah, so yep, we're, yep. no fools, just fun. Um, and I have a big one. So let's get into the, the fun stuff. So Katie, what are you drinking today? Uh, so currently I am having whiskey on the rocks, single shot. I'm not going to tell you what kind it is because it butts up to with what we're talking about today. Oh, well then. Okay. That's perfect. I can tell you it's very smooth, lightly smoky, very delicious. Okay. I've just got my water today, my water and my vape pen. I didn't get too wild and crazy today because my story is so big. I wanted to be able to concentrate on it a little bit better. So just vaping that, (laughs) that, and if I get too stoned, I think I might kind of like go into a spiral with my topic today. I can feel that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sorry. Can I take a, a sidebar for a second? Folks, we have gone, as of this recording, we are well over the 1100 listeners mark. We just shot past a thousand and, you know, here we are. So thank you. That's to you guys listening and telling people and sharing it. And when it's so wonderful that people are here and they give a damn for one, which is fantastic. And, uh, of course, you know, the United States is kind of leading the way because that's where we are located. But in terms of new states, California has always been there with us for a while, which awesome. I know that. Yeah. Thanks, Callie. But a lot more uh, cities have been following now. So Granada Hills and which is like North LA, LA what? itself is also like jumped up on the list, but whoever's- Are we have LA people? Oh yeah. I mean- Hell yeah. Welcome. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. And Sacramento is, is huge as well, too. Texas, they've- The Lone they've, Star State. Yeah, they, Cowboy Boot kicked in the door and they're like, hey, we're here to do some listens. Katie, Tomball, Tumball, Dallas. Oh my gosh, Dallas and Houston. Like basically all of Texas is just like, hey, we're here. Oh yeah, welcome state. Texas. Yeah, Ohio. Um, I think we've got all the boroughs of New York really? City. Mm-hmm. All righty. Nice. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, there, I mean, there's a lot more I'll have to remember for next time. I'm just trying to do this off my head, but I just saw a whole bunch of more listens in these areas. It, it's so great. So welcome that is everybody. extremely exciting. Yes. All welcome everyone at Smoke Circle. We're so happy to have you. We've added some new countries as well too, like uh, Ecuador and Trinidad and Tobago and Spain, um, Ethiopia, Wonderful. just some little listens all over the world. So it's, uh, it's been really nice. And of course we have Australia, Germany, the UK still, still in it. Uh, Canada, Alberta, Canada's come in They're They're a new province, which is the only place in Canada that I've been. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Oh, and our Northern neighbors, Wisconsin. Oh yeah. The land of dairy. Yes. <laughs> I love your cheese. <laughs> particularly Economawalk. 
which is such a great little oh, town. Yeah. There's a bar on the main street when we were going up to Door County. I want to say it's like Salties or Crankies or Grumpies. It's kind of, it's kind of like a name that sounds like, like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. They, they count, kind of sounds like a uh, little dive bar where you walk in and everyone's going to give you angry looks or whatever. <laughs> it is the antithesis of that. It's, it is a little dive bar, but it's, it's actually really beautiful inside. Everyone is incredibly nice because it is Wisconsin. It's the Midwest. Amen. They're open at like stupid o'clock in the morning because they're getting the people off of third shift and they're having their drinks and they're hanging out. And then like, you know, European sports are on because it's the only sort of sports that are on at that on time. In the middle of the night. <laughs> and we went in there at like seven o'clock on our way up to Door County because it was the World Cup. And yes. we watched uh, one of the games in there. And amazing. It was fantastic. We loved it so much. We're like on our way back. We're coming back through here and we're getting some drinks. And um, it's lovely. So shout out to amazing little bar and a condo walk. And Wisconsin in general, because I will tell you, I love Wisconsin. Not that I don't love the rest of you. I love the rest of your states, all for different reasons. You're all like children. Uh, <laughs> you all have something different to bring to the table. I don't love one more than the other. I love you all for different reasons. However, Wisconsin, oh, the dairy, the dairy state, I tell you. Hey, you guys ready to, to do the thing that we came here for? And that's to Good talk to about it. history. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Doo-doo-doo. I'm ready. Bottle, leaf, grinder, shoot. I was trying to do a bottle, but I did a grinder. <laughs> I win. Yeah, that means I go first. Yeah, you go first. And so now we get to hear why you chose the cocktail that you chose as well. All righty. Get comfy. It's not a long story, but it's a fun one. Nestle in, crisscross applesauce. Oh, I'm in there. Okay, got it. All right. Whatever you do to get comfy. Listeners, Laurel, nestled away in the countryside in a small town of Lynchburg, Tennessee, around the year of about 1849, Jasper Newton Daniel was born. <laughs> if it wasn't blatantly obvious by now, I am doing the history of Jack Daniels, and I am currently drinking a private select barrel of um, binnies, so like different uh, liquor people they get to pick their own mm -hmm. uh it's their special it was the last one on the shelf and i have the little plaque around its little bottle to prove it so nice so christian's my, uh... got one of those from woodman's i think it's like a weller or something like that he oh, has is a it? private yeah i think that's really cool that some stores go and do that you know get their own yeah anywho jack daniels born the youngest of 10 to callaway and lucinda matilda daniels he was a Scottish, Irish, and Welsh descent, but his grandparents had come over from Scotland and Wales and all that. So what was that? Would that make him second generation? Yeah, because it was his grandparents. The exact birth date of him is unknown, however, because a town fire destroyed the courthouse that the records were kept in. And his mother, sadly, died shortly after his birth, most likely from complications of childbirth. Uh, but we don't have any real data or evidence to say one way or the other. So can't really be sure, but we're guessing probably because it wasn't long after he was born that it happened, uh, okay. as I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, on June 26th of 1951, his father remarried to Matilda Van Zant and had three more children. So Jack, well, Jasper is actually his name, but he went by Jack. I know. Isn't that funny? I think it's so cute, Jasper. I, I know. 
And what did Blake say? He goes, no wonder he was angry. I was like, I like the name Jasper. (laughs) Better than Blake. No, I'm just kidding. So Jack, youngest of 10, and then middle child of 13. Oh, gosh. Right? So it's no surprise that in 1864, Jasper, or Jack as we will call him, left home and was taken under the wing of Reverend Dan Call. So, which makes sense to me. I'm guessing they sent their kids off to like apprenticeships and places to learn trades because they have so freaking many. They have more than could fit in an egg carton. So that's mm-hmm. a lot of kids. That's a lot to feed too at that, t- you know, at, at Honestly, any time. Oh but <laughs> Well, and they were poor too. Yeah. Nowhere ever does it say like what his dad did. But I'm going to tell you right now, they lived in the mountains of Tennessee and I'm pretty sure that they did not have money. Mm -hmm. Uh, just based upon how it sounds like Jack lived his life and like kind of how he chose to associate with people later in life told me that he grew up poor. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Personal opinion. Um, at the call family farm, Jack would learn the art of distilling whiskey from a slave by the name of nearest green. Now this has recently come to light in about 2016, Uh, And the distillery was just talking about how no one ever like deleted the history or anything like that. But they were like, well, we really kind of realized that no one was telling it. Mm. And I was like, well, yeah, you should. (laughs) That's kind of an important thing because that's the person in my mind uh, where the credit goes because they taught Jack Daniels everything he knew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've got lots of fun information on that. Okay. Yeah. Just like people have like, you know, their master's distillers that they're learning from in other stories mm-hmm. of distillers who have like famous brands these days, you know, they, well, like, oh, we're going to get into that. Ah, okay. I will sit back and, and so, you know. so such brands as Elijah Craig and McKenna and all of them also, uh, had slave distillers. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now they're under heaven's Hill, uh, brand, but obviously heaven's Hill came about after slavery was abolished and all that, but yes, they all had their beginnings with slaves as distillers. So Call, Dan Call, uh, the reverend, told uh, Nearest to teach Jack everything he knew. And he was quoted in the book that's called Jack Daniel's Legacy, saying, Uncle Nearest is the best whiskey maker I know of. It is often said that the distillery was licensed in 1866. However, from the 2004 biography, Blood and Whiskey, The Life and Times of Jack Daniel, says the land and deed records actually show it was not actually founded until 1875. So I could see that they were for sure making stuff and all that, but, you know, they weren't licensed, quote unquote. But if you go to the distillery, they'll tell you it started in 1866. So I was like, all right, so maybe they were making it. Maybe they weren't legal. Who knows? I don't think people, because 1866, that's right after the Civil War. So I don't think people really cared all that much. There's a lot of you know what I other mean? things going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jack hired Nearest as his master distiller. Hell yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. Along with two as of his should. sons. Okay. So interestingly enough, there is a photo from the late 1800s, early 1900s um, of the first crew and the distillery working together. And right immediately to his right in as Jack is obviously in the middle of the picture immediately to his right is a black man. It's thought that it was probably one of Nearest's sons and his name is spelled like, like near as almost like nearest N E A R E S T like nearest. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, 
and it is misspelled in the census that was taken that he was on. But according to him, it was spelled N-E-R because I think they spelled it N-E-A-R-I-S. That's not correct. It's the first spelling I gave is how you correctly say his name, but you say it like Neris. Okay. Anywho, it was unique, this particular picture, because uh, generally in distilleries at this time, they obviously made all the black folks stand in the back and all the mm. white people were at the front. Right. So this is kind of unique amongst its time that front and center right next to Jack, you know? Good. Okay. So, well, there we go. <laughs> that's what, Some progress. This might sound like odd <laughs> to you, but that's what makes me think that Jack absolutely grew up poor. Mm. So he didn't really see himself any different from these people. Does that make sense? Just like uh, just other folks that were working with him, that kind of thing, or? I think um, people, I mean, I know down in the South, obviously, and they did make mention and a lot of the research I did, they're like, you know, slavery happened in Tennessee and Kentucky, but it was not near as common as it was further South. I was like, all right, I can understand that. You're still under the Mason Dixon line though. So you can't tell me. <laughs> that it was like great or anything you know what I mean I was like because Virginia's sure. right next door so I didn't really <laughs> buy a whole lot of that personally and again this is just my opinion this is just what a lot of the articles were saying but it always seemed to me that in a lot of the ways I saw that Jack handled stuff that he didn't really see himself like above people of color necessarily okay um yeah. and just I, in I the way see. that he seemed to deal with them and all that and I was like well I mean honestly if he grew up poor working alongside everyone he probably didn't see himself above them but the, again that's just my personal like looking at it sociologically how he positions himself with them and talks about them and hired them and paid them and did all this stuff like he kind of seemed to treat them with a little bit more like equality than other people would at the time okay and that's just what I was pulling from. It was fascinating to me because I honestly expected him to be a racist son of a bitch. I'm going to be <laughs> honest with you. I hate to say that, but it just to me, I was like, oh, yeah, he was probably a slave owner. Of course he was. He wasn't. He never was. OK. And again, if he grew up poor, yeah, he probably couldn't afford to. But again, it was just one of those things. I was surprised by that. It was a very different picture that got painted for me when I was doing a lot of research, which was interesting. So my assumptions seem to be incorrect. Oh, well. It's nice to be proven wrong in a positive way. Yes, I will take that any day of the week. The opening of the distillery was located close to its prime resource, the mineral-rich Cave Spring Hollow. Always got to have good water, Laurel. That's right. Jack never had any kids or married, but he took his nephews under his wing. One of them was, there was Lem, L-E-M, and Jess Motlow. They were the sons of his sister, Finetta, F-I-N-E-T-T-A. In 1907, Jack's health was failing, so he actually gave his distillery over to the two Matlow brothers. I think Jess was the oldest and Lem was the youngest. Lem learned a lot of the distilling and stuff from Jack and the Green Sons, and Jess did a lot of the bookkeeping and that, if I remember correctly. Pretty sure, because they kind of went into a lot of it, and I was like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> So Jack, unfortunately, eventually succumbs to blood poisoning from unrelenting gangrene on October 9th of 1911. Oh, Daniel's shit. modern, yeah, I know. Daniel's modern day biographer asserts that the safe story isn't true, where they said he kicked the safe and broke his toe, got gangrene and died. Oh, you haven't heard that? No. That's what they tell you at the distillery, too. You can go see the safe that he kicked. 
but basically what he said, he's like, he's like, he abused that safe all the time because he always forgot he had kind of a temper. Okay. Which is another reason why I kind of expected him to be an unpleasant human. A lot of people actually didn't really say that he was a bad guy, which I was really interested. But um, because I always get this picture painted of a small, angry man with a big mustache. (laughs) But apparently he would forget the safe uh, combination a lot and he'd get pissed at it. So if I remember correctly, Lem was the one who would always come in, try to come in before him in the morning to open the safe to save him the trouble of kicking the shit out of it. Uh, but he did end up with blood poisoning and gangrene, and it did eventually kill him. Ooh. So that part of it is true. However, there's lots of accounts um, of him abusing the safe for years, even after that. Uh, a lot of people said it. It's totally possible that silly things like that could have led to him getting gang- gangrene and all that, uh, and highly likely. But they said there's no proof that that particular incident is what did it. Right. Okay. Just, you know, trying to say it how it is. <laughs> it's most likely that Jack learned all he knew from Neris as slavery and distilling have always had deep ties. In some ledgers on some of these distilleries, slaves were listed as distillers. However, in others, it's likely that we'll never know the names of the people who did actually do the original distilling. There are some, though, uh, that I mean, it does. I don't want to say it even listed them as slaves, but it said that they were master distillers because they came up with the mash and all of that. You know, original recipes. American slaves for a long time had their own traditions of alcohol production. Believe it or not, it's easy to believe. Actually, going back to corn, beer, and fruit spirits from West Africa. Mm-hmm. So many Africans made alcohol illicitly while in slavery, which is actually super fascinating because it's most likely that the, so Jack Daniels, for those who don't know, chars their barrels by themselves. They don't ever hire anyone to do this. They do this on their own distillery uh, in their own special way. That process comes from old slave traditions because the maple charcoal removes the impurities and gives a little bit of sweetness to the alcohol. So when they're making this illicit alcohol that they can't be found doing, it would really help sweeten it up and make it a lot less harsh when it was, you know, when they were trying to, you know, drink and consume it, obviously. So it wouldn't have as much of a lingering smell on a person? Is that what you're... Uh, so it-, it didn't like make you make a face when you drank it, like it make it more pleasant to drink. Oh, I see. Otherwise okay. it was downright nasty. Remember how you said when we talked about prohibition and the poisoning in whatever episode that was? I don't remember. That was an earlier four, episode. I think. It is four. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how gin, they I said think. they would make it in uh, bathtubs and stuff like that. And it was really harsh and like not great. And you'd have to mix it. Mm-hmm. That was the point is to make the whiskey easier to drink, more pleasant. So it's likely that that's where Jack got that from. Because Nearest learned that from generations of slaves who would do that to distill their own alcohol. Brilliant. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's cool to me to see how like all these traditions, like from a place like West Africa got brought over here and then transformed into what they are today. Yeah. That's a, um, it's kind of common. Like when you, when you start learning about that sort of, um, I don't know, what would you say? Like, um, appropriation even of things, you know, like that indigenous cultures have, or that Mm -hmm. other cultures from outside of 
you know, the United mm-hmm. States have brought here like music now distilling. I didn't know that. That's amazing. And um, cool, right? Like a lot of like cool cultural things that you're like, oh my gosh, this is I, I derived from West Africa. Who would have right, thought? Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's why it like it is really important. Like black history is really important to cover because black history is American history. American history is black history. It's it's all woven together. And I didn't know that about distilling. I think that's neither did I. Yeah. Amazing. Until today. So when I like researched into this, because I've always been a fan of Jack Daniels since I was young, <laughs> um, much to Blake's chagrin. Um, there's always a bottle of Jack Daniels at my house in case you all wondered next to the really expensive bourbons. I insist that my Jack Daniels sits next to it. Uh, but yeah, I agree. It's one of those things that it's um, integral to our history. Yes. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing to tell about. Uh, I've got just a little bit more for you. There is still a man who whose name escapes me. He's about 91 years old at the time that the New York Times New York Times article was written. Uh, and he is related to Nira Green. Just kind of something he heard every once in a while. Claude Edie. He's 91. He worked for the distillery from 1946 to 1989. He was related to Green on his mother's side. He says, I didn't know much about him. I heard his name around. The only thing I knew was that he helped Jack Daniel make the whiskey. Hmm. So. He was the whiskey. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, together they made it, you know, I mean, it was, he taught him everything he knew and together they made this product that's lasted. They celebrated their 150th anniversary. What would that be? I can't remember. They just, they said it in the last article because that was the whole point is this came out on their 150th anniversary Mm. where they started talking about the real history behind the whiskey. And where he learned it, he didn't learn it from the pastor Dan Call, like used to be the story. He actually learned it from Neris. Um, and then after Neris was given his freedom with the ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that's when Jack hired him and his sons on at the distillery and made the master distillers. That's awesome. I thought that was great. Uh, so after that, so sadly Jack did pass. So the master distiller was Jess and his brother Lem. They saw the distillery through the worst challenges possible, prohibition and the Great Depression. Yeah, they took everything they learned from Jack and they became the master distillers. So I guess during the prohibition, they actually put their whiskey into warehouses in Birmingham, Cincinnati and St. Louis. And that whiskey just sat for years, you know, because you can't use it during prohibition, but they didn't get rid of it. Prohibition was repealed in 1933, but it would be several more years before they resumed production because those ingredients were in short supply after the repeal. So it was hard to get all that stuff. After Prohibition, there was another master distiller who um, his name was Lem Tolly. Lem is a very popular name down there at this time. (laughs) (laughs) It's not one I'll ever hear. He helps them weather their second shutdown. Uh, It came during World War II because they were actually prohibited from making whiskey because they wanted to redirect the resources. That's Mm -hmm. what it was. And they were like, sorry. So also another incredible part of this brand is it has lasted the test of time. I have in my house, which I'm going to frame and put in my living room, a list of distillers. We bought it at, uh, at Old Barton. 
when we oh, were there okay. in Kentucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It lists all the distill, and this is just in Kentucky, so you won't see Jack Daniels on there or anything like that. Um, it lists all of the distilleries in Kentucky and what happened to them from the time of their conception and uh, first, you know, production to the time a lot of them were lost in fires. Most of them were lost during prohibition. So for a brand like this to be able to stand the test of time and not only just one, but multiple shutdowns, big testament to lasting that test of time. It's just really impressive. Most of them barely made it. And that's true. Most of them barely made it. You know, we're lucky that we have the history of, of whiskey and bourbon and stuff like that, that we do today. So I, I know the poster that you're talking about. I remember being fascinated by it as well, thinking like, holy shit, there were so many distilleries at one point and they just kind of would drop. A off. lot of them went up in fires too. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fires. Everything's made of like, you know, straw and wood and gasoline. Flammable <laughs> liquor. <laughs> and liquor. Yeah. So after the war, about 1947, a New York City bar, Jackie Gleason, introduces Frank Sinatra to Jack Daniels' Tennessee whiskey. It's the start of a friendship that will endure the ages. And in 1951, the rock and roll takes over the airwaves production at the distillery as it inches back closer to the levels that it sold at and the productivity and the sales and success it had before prohibition started. Big deal more master distillers come in a lot of the history after that i didn't want to like do every little thing actually really integrated believe it or not into rock and roll like the british invasion and all of that a constant partner in like the punk movement generation and like the 70s and stuff jack daniels was actually a partner in that <laughs> so it just kind of to bring it kind of home to where i am today Totally fascinating to me how integrated it was with the music industry, because when I go to my massive metal festival out in Bridgeview, guess which whiskey is always the headliner there? Jack Daniels. It's always Jack Daniels. And they have that sweet pull along, like it's like a mini museum and you walk through and they show you his shoe size and you can stand next to, he was a little guy, by the way, because he and I had the same size feet. For all of you who Uh wonder, Jack Daniels and I had the same size feet. Wow. Oh my For gosh. those of you who don't that's know, adorable. I'm like 4'11. So <laughs> that, that's pretty tiny. You could be 4'11 with like a size nine or 10 or something, but uh, no, you were like a six, six and a half, something like that. And and a half. I've got wide feeders. So like six and a half, seven, but that's tiny for a guy's feet yeah. because in guy's shoes, I wear a size five. Yeah. I was gonna say, I wear a size five in guys. And they show you the charcoal that they drip it through and all that. And it's air conditioned. It feels nice on a hot July day. But yeah. And then you can, as you leave, you can obviously buy your Jack Daniels um, cocktail, which I obviously enjoy sipping on. Um, And from there, so it really started come the 80s is when you see like Gentleman Jack and the nicer, more refined whiskeys come out. And in the 90s, woot woot. The first single barrel selects are are drawn drawn off of and finished by the master distiller, currently Jimmy himself. Let me tell you the latest master distiller's name because they they change decently often. You'd be surprised. As of 2020, a new decade brings a new master distillery at the helm of Jack Daniels. Chris Fletcher 
steps into the top spot to guide Mr. Jack's legacy and his whiskey into the future. That is the history of Jack Daniels. However, I wanted to share with you because the more I delved into it, the more I learned again about the real history of distilling and how much more there was to it and uh, the enduring of a brand through a lot of things that pretty much almost shut the country down. It's lucky, I think, that it started after the Civil War because I could see that really being tough to get through. Um, but it's a good thing we had it because if we didn't have the Civil War, maybe we wouldn't have the master distillers there to make the whiskey that we have today. To nearest. To nearest. To nearest green. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's wonderful. That's a cool story. And Isn't it great. Yeah, I love, you know, I mean, that's what we're all about is like sort of like the weird or slightly. You think you know what the history funny. is, but you don't. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for listening. <laughs> all right, you ready? Hit me. Get your drink, get your weed, get snuggled in everybody. It's a big story and it's just going to be one of those like, you know, ones to get your brain going. I feel like this is in our wheelhouse of weird and unusual history, but it's also something fun to like chat about over a drink and a smoke. And on top of that, it is April Fool's Day. So I was like, you know, it'd be fun to tackle this topic. And that topic is conspiracy theories, namely the the history of conspiracy theories. So we're going to talk about like how they, like their origin story, essentially. Like a good comic book. <laughs> Here is your conspiracy theories origins minus a uh, really messed up Deadpool at the end of the movie that pissed everybody off. Now I'm mainly focusing on, like I said, the, the origins of them, but I want to start with a little bit of the psychology on why we believe what we believe. In this episode, I'm also not going to be tackling too many individual theories because we would just be here for a week straight and would be a uh, 10 part episode. (laughs) Yeah. So for that, you're going to have to follow us on social media. So we have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Those are all going to be linked in our show notes. You'll find us there. And that's where I'm going to be doing little mini lessons on some of our favorite conspiracy theories. We got some feedback from our followers on Instagram, which was so great. They all had some like really fun ones that uh, they wanted us to get into. So those will be a wonderful smoke circle. Oh, they're so, it's so great. It, it's going to be fantastic. So you got to follow us on the social media. The first thing I wanted to start with is the psychology of conspiracy theories. So that when we get into the history of them, the why people become so consumed by them makes a little more sense. I listened to some really great podcast episodes about this topic. They're all listed below in the show notes, but one of them was psychology in Seattle, the psychology of conspiracy theories. And the other one was factually with Adam Conover interviewing author Rob Brotherton. So I I also read Rob Brotherton's book, Suspicious Minds, which is all about the thinking and psychology of conspiracy theories through time. It was a really neat combination of both those things. So if you want to dive in deeper to any of the stuff I talk about today, I highly recommend either of those two podcast episodes. They're very educational while still being entertaining. So it's not really, it's not like dry interview, you know, format where it's like boring or anything like that. It's a little more fun. Um, And then the Suspicious Minds book uh, has been really interesting as well too. And since we're talking about the psychology of conspiracy theories, 
before we all get too big for our britches and are all like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe that crap. People believe that kind of stuff are idiots and I'm not an idiot. I like us all to remember that we are not above how our brains are wired to work. And so before we sling too much judgment around, understand that even if there is something that we talk about today or like over the course of this next month, when we get into certain conspiracies that you might think someone's really stupid for believing there are other things in your brain that you have unconscious bias about like political or religious beliefs, et cetera. Airy beliefs. Yeah. Well, exactly. Somebody might be like, Theory's disgusting and evil and this and that. And you're like, I love it so much, you know? So some get- people want to tell me that like California cheese is superior to Wisconsin. I'm sorry, Callie. I love you and your sunshine, <laughs> but I don't believe that your cheese products are better. But then again, they have organic Valley and their cows wear little GPS trackers to say that they got so many steps a day. So I don't know. Maybe there's something to be said for it. You didn't know that, did you? I did not know that. Oh, Yeah. My dairy obsession goes so deep that I take YouTube tours, wait for it, of the dairy places that I get my products from. How psychotic is that? You know, somebody somebody else would actually turn that around and say, well, you know what? You are being an informed consumer and you are doing research into where you are putting your money. <laughs> I watch the guy that gives the cows pedicures on YouTube. That's how insane. I get with this. It's unhealthy. Yeah. Okay. I gotta catch my breath here. <sighs> all right. We all have <laughs> we all have pre-existing bias, is what we I come have, to say. Yes, we all have our pre-existing bias, whether you know, conscious or unconscious. And so when we boil it all down, our brains love to create, and honestly, they need to create order when there is chaos. When we have a major event, typically a political event or something that's catastrophic there actually is a measurable uptick in the belief in conspiracy theories because people are looking for order and reason amongst the bullshit. And honestly, it makes perfect sense, right? You know, we, we need to have like a reason for why things happen. Because we need to rationalize. We do need to rationalize. We, we are beings that try to rationalize everything. Katie, what emotion do you think is the leading catalyst for people believing and adhering to conspiracy theories? Oh, um, okay. My first thought was anger. Um, my second thought would be fear. Yeah, fear. And well, actually the anger can come out of the fear. So mine were reversed. I guess <laughs> I get angry before I get afraid. It's that, that fear and that fear leads to a, a myriad of other reactions and emotions, of course, but the the root of that is the fear. And so when we have big events in the world that are beyond our control, because most stuff is out of our control, when we have these big things like a pandemic, 9-11, a contentious election, attack on on the U.S. Capitol building, they're scary and they make us feel small. And let's face it, I mean, we are small and out of control of these things, you know, And this feeling of a lack of control leads to the fear, which is a very powerful emotion. It makes people overestimate the power and the control of whatever or whoever we perceive as our enemy in this situation. There's that. And by the way, um, while I have some knowledge of psychology based on how I've used it in my in my job, I am definitely not a psychologist by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm just I'm just regurgitating information from those those sources when it comes to regurgitating (laughs) published psychology information though right yes Uh uh-huh 
there were examples of experiments done about this at the University of Amsterdam that Rob Brotherton called in his book, Tidy Desk, Tidy Mind. Hmm. So the experiment looks like this. The participants were sat down at a computer and asked to think about something that they were ambivalent about, you know, equal pros and cons for a certain whatever it might be they think about. And they were asked to type them up on the computer that they were sitting at. Okay, think of think of this thing, think of equal, think of the pros, think of the cons, and you know, just write them out. Okay, so they do so, but partway through the computer gets a fake error message. So the person doing the experiments like, oh gee, that's a real shame. Surprise, surprise. We need to move to another desk and we'll do our next questionnaire over there. Now, when they go to this next desk, the desk is messy. There's pens all over the place. The paper's been crumpled up. There's shit everywhere. One group has to sit in the mess and then look at a series of pictures with splotches and random dots all over it. A certain number of the pictures have faintly discernible images in them, but most of them do not. So one of them, for example, has like a, the outline of a sailboat that you can see. And you can see it. I mean, it's, it looks like if I held a pencil by like the eraser with my left hand, which is my non-dominant hand, and then try to draw a little sailboat. And then someone came in and just put a bunch of like dots and scratches and little things all over it. It kind of looks okay. like that, but you can see that there's a slight sailboat shape to it. There's some okay. pictures kind of like that where you could actually see real pictures in it, but most of the pictures were just random dots. Jackson Pollock. Yeah, Jackson Pollock, exactly. The other group cleaned the desk before starting to look at the pictures. So when they go to move to that messy desk, the psychologist giving the experiments like, oh, hey, you know what? Can you help me pick this up a little bit? It's, you know, sorry about this. Let's kind of move this stuff out of the way and you know, make it look nice. The messy group saw images in nearly all of the photos with the exception of like two or three. The cleanup group saw far less images in the random pictures. Feel like a lot of this has to do with the fact that the ones at the messy desk were under stress. Exactly right. Although this isn't noted in the experiment, my takeaway is it kind of made me wonder if some of the pictures, you know, if they had pictures in some of them to be like a little carrot to keep them looking for more of a pattern, which is similar to actual conspiracy theories. There's like a little bit of truth in them. So I wasn't sure if that was the case. It was just a note that I wrote to myself because like if there were no real pictures in any of them, how would that experiment have gone was what my thought process was. Yeah, they're stressed out because they're in mess and disorder. And so their brain is looking to start making connections of I'm in chaos and disorder. I'm looking at chaos and disorder on these splotches. I need to make some sense out of it. The psychologist on the Psychology in Seattle podcast talked about different factors that can lead to an overbelief in conspiracy theories. And some of them are evolutionary, like how our ancestors would match patterns to create order and therefore protection from threats. Like an example would be, oh, I saw that other group of hunter gatherers walking by yesterday. And that sound I hear is probably them. And, you know, we better be on our guard to make sure they're not going to come attack us or might be a saber toothed tiger that I heard growling and, okay. you know, not a badger or something, you know, things like that, where, you know, having that heightened sense of fear or maybe paranoia, some might say, helped early humans stay alive and pass on their genes and evolve and all that. And some of that pattern matching has stuck around with us, but can also lead us to see patterns and things that aren't necessarily there. Some other psychological ah. factors that can lead someone to have 
more beliefs in conspiracy theories are interpersonal paranoia, like I'm scared of Mental you. Illness. Or I'm well. That was another thing that they talked about in there, which I, I don't go oh, into so, this so is much. separate from mental illness then. Yes. Well, okay. Sort of. Mental illness is in some of these, but isn't like a prevailing factor necessarily. So it, it's like, if you are, if you are yourself a very insecure person, you have a fear of abandonment, fear of like how people perceive you, or you think people might be out to get you in some way, not necessarily that like the world is out to get you. But if you're just like, you know, I don't really trust that person. I don't really feel like they have my best interests at heart. That can make somebody a little bit more prone to, again, overbelief or over-adherence in conspiracy theories. But then there's also the, uh, narcissism is another one. Oh, narcissism. Yeah. Um, I could but, see that being a big factor. But then there's like other things, like if someone just naturally has a more agreeable or disagreeable personality, if a person is a minority. So uh, women, people of color, you know, basically any minority group, religious or, you know, racial, whatever it might be, societal. And then in groups versus out groups. So the in group would be someone saying, I am a conservative Republican. That's my in group. You know how people kind of like talk about like their tribes. Oh, they're like, they're my tribe. They're my, they're my people. You know, that creates an in group. And I like my metal people, man. Right. So if you meet another person who's like, dudette, I am totally into metal as well. So you'd be like, yeah, bro. Well, my gosh, who's your favorite band? What shows have you seen? Like you can Mm -hmm. instantly sort of start bonding with that person. And you're like, oh yeah, they're my people. They're like me. Sorry. I totally buy into that. I'm like, you're damn right. They're my people. Right. You know, same thing with like, when you're reading, uh, like news is a great example, especially when it comes to like political news. If you would identify yourself more of a conservative Republican or a progressive liberal or a libertarian or a socialist, whatever, whatever your sort of political leaning might be, like your label for yourself, when you read news through either of those, like any of those lenses, if it agrees with your political label that you have for yourself, you're going to be more likely to believe it, more likely to be like, I want to follow this news. It's like people that believe more in Fox news, have a certain sort of politically, same thing with like CNN, you know, like there, you kind of start to follow stories that might generally line up more with your gravity belief and more thinking. towards what's familiar and comfortable to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the in-group out group. Same thing works with religions as well. So any like little group of people, like you have a common collective belief set or interests, whatever it might be, it can be big and small, really. Those are your, your in-group. And so people outside of that, in some ways, kind of like a, an enemy or they're, you're different than, so it creates its own little divide. But then that also plays into the narcissism because then there's this whole like, well, we're better. We're more important. Just going to say that. We know the truth. We know more. The rest of you are sheeple. It all plays into it. So those are some of the, the psychological things. Oh, I forgot lower education as well too. Um, though that's not always the case because sometimes you'll find scientists and doctors who will believe in conspiracy theories, but this is what this psychologist said. The same guy from psychology in Seattle went on to say that unless somebody's going through talk therapy to help resolve those issues, then people are going to be susceptible to overbelief in conspiracy theories, as well as 
doubling down on them when presented with evidence to the contrary. When there is any confusion or fear, we dig into what we believe more because it helps us make sense in order of the world around us. Again, when you're presenting something that blatantly conflicts with what that person believes, they're getting that fear and confusion response again. So they're just going to cling deeper to what their conspiracy is. Does that make sense? She's really interesting. It's really, is really neat. There was an instance that they talked about with a group of flat earthers. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> they set up a legitimate experiment. They had, you know, here's our hypothesis. Here's our control group. Here's how we're going to do this. And there was a scientist, a flat earth scientist, which sounds like the biggest oxymoron ever. But anyway, they set it all up. And at the end, they were proved wrong. They were proved that, yes, the earth is indeed an oblong sphere. And then when presented with that evidence, they were like, oh, well, yeah, well, well, that's because of this. And that's because of this. And this thing's wrong. And yeah, blah, 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 blah. Because it really fucked up their view on how they think the planet is shaped. And so they really clung to that original idea. So isn't that weird? They also said too, that there are some people who strongly believe in two very different and conflicting conspiracy theories. The example given was Princess Diana was killed by the British monarchy. Her death was okay. a, as a setup from the British monarchy. They wanted her dead. They took her out. And then, the, and then the other, and then the <laughs> other conspiracy is that Princess Diana is, is alive and well. She faked her own death and she is living happily on an island somewhere in bliss. Two very, very different conspiracy theories that there's a, a handful of people. There's a certain amount of people that actually believe both of those strongly i would honestly actually tell you there's probably more than a handful they i didn't get a number and if i did get a number i didn't write it down but i remember them saying there's like a surprising amount of people who like when surveyed they have said oh yes i believe that and i also believe yep. that which are- it's easy to say what you believe with anonymity though because mm-hmm. then no one's going to come after you for believing it but two things that are directly opposing like that yeah yeah, totally. Isn't that amazing? Very interesting, huh? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that, but yeah, you, you're very right. Another interesting thing in terms of psychology was that the font in which something's written can lead people to believe or not believe in something. So, I mean, look at Comic oh, really? Sans. <laughs> look at look at the font Comic Sans, for example. It looks like a, uh, like little kid crayon writing. I and... use that all the time. What does that say about my IQ level? Wait, you actually use that font as a, as like a legitimate, like that's, um, you're not, you're not, you're not answering me. It's making me nervous. So that is actually a font that you use for like emails or papers and stuff like that. For you have to use times new Roman 12 Laurel, you know, that. don't be an amateur for essays and stuff. But like, if I'm emailing people, you know what it is, is I like to appear, well, keep in mind, I work a customer service job. So I like to appear as customer friendly and approachable as possible. I always use Comic Sans. Okay. That's an interesting thing I learned about you today. Mm-hmm. Why? What does it say about me? I want to hear it. Tell me. Well, it, it's just saying that like, if you're using a Push font that is like, I don't know, either uh, deemed childish or you know quote unquote unprofessional or it's hard to read or it's like illegible it's like more illegible even like even like the nice pretty scripty fonts they're Mm -hmm. harder to read you know so even if they might look nice or whatever Mm -hmm. they're they're deemed less credible but 
if you put that exact same statement in a larger, more bold and legible font, you're more likely to read it and think it's true. My opinion is that it probably, because it, it makes our brain think it looks like newsprint. That's exactly what I was going to say is we just associate it with a more credible source. Right. All right. So now let's get into the history part because that's what you're here for anyway, right? But I hope that people found maybe some of that interesting or at least shed some light on things so you can apply it in your own life. mind boggling to me. That was very <laughs> exciting. I'm actually really glad you told us that. Yeah. I, if you want to know, to know more, I would highly recommend listening to listening to the episodes, at least you can read suspicious minds if you want as well. It's just a book. So it's a little bit more time consuming, but it's also very good. Yeah. But hopefully you can use some of that for your own life, how you're interacting with people. But then also now we can apply that onto our, our history portion. Conspiracy theories are not new. And if you think they are a uniquely American thing, you'd be mistaken. Although we are really good at it. <laughs> We're really good at conspiracy theories and paranoia, but it is not ours wholly. It is an all over the world thing. All races, all continent, well, uh, all nations, I can't say continents. I don't know about Antarctica, but everybody has got something like this. You know, they've got their, their story and it could be new. It can be old. It can be prevalent through their society, like how it is for America, but uh, we all have conspiracy theories and they can even be found in early recordings of history. So one early example takes us back to ancient Rome. Hop in the time machine, kids. Here we go. It's my favorite part. We like to paint a picture. We're going to go back to July 19th, 64 CE. We are going to the Rome. Bill and Ted, it's Laurel and Katie. Oh, Bill and Ted's one of my favorite movies. I love it. Excellent adventure, of course, not the bogus or the face of music or anything like that. The original one. So we're going to the Roman games at the Circus Maximus. It is party time, people. It's a beautiful summer evening. It's gorgeous. We're going to watch some Roman games. There's food carts cooking up the stuff. However, as you disembark, please watch your step and be sure to keep your head on a swivel because the fucking city is on fire. <laughs> the great fire of Rome. We have stepped into it. This is all Nero's fault, right? Remember how we talked about Emperor Nero, you know, and he's playing the fiddle like he's GD Charlie Daniels laughing. I was going to point that out because when you spoke about Boudicca, I was like, wait, wasn't Nero the guy like fiddling <laughs> while it was burning? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. He's laughing maniacally while his great city burns to ash around him. And he's just on the roof purveying the, the scene so you can get the best view of the flames, right? Uh, that's not exactly the case. And also fiddles don't exist at this time. But when I mean, we did talk about the Boudicca episode, when I said that her history was recorded by two Roman historians, Tacitus and Cassius Dio, and they weren't the most reliable historians. Remember how I said that? Keep in mind, we have entrusted our historic record keeping to humans, fallible human beings with their own biases, conscious or unconscious. Right. And like we said in the first episode, history is often written by the victor. This is correct. Look at the distilling. Nobody talks about that. They actually got these from old slave recipes mm -hmm. or, you know, just stuff like that. Or like that song, Amazing Grace, as beautiful as it is, it's a slave hymn. Mm -hmm. And they used to sing it, hoping that, you know, one day they'd be liberated and not have to work, you know, in the fields under forced servitude and everything like that. And, you know, swing low, sweet chariot. A lot of our gospel, American gospel music mm -hmm. is, is that, yeah. A lot of it's considered classic American, like, songs, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. use it, like, patriotic events, which right. I'm like, well, that's kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, that is that funny. Tacitus paints a little bit more 
on the fence picture of Nero's involvement. He reports the rumors without openly endorsing anything. He writes that Nero was 36 miles away in another town, whereas Cassius Dio, who wrote his account 165 years after the fire, embellishes the hell out of it. He says that the burning was done in malice. Nero sent out this well-organized team to torch the city, and he went up to the roof to laugh and sing while everything burned down. Uh, Whatever the case was, Nero was real pissed off about being the target of rumors after the fire, and he in turn rounded up a group of Christians to be labeled as scapegoats and tortured for their crime of nothing. Now, this is not the first, nor will it be the last conspiracy theory for Roman history. Conspiracies went back as far as the founding of Rome itself when Romulus, one of the city's founders and its first king, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Meanwhile, our dear Cassius Dio has his own hot take on the death of Romulus, and he says that while Romulus was giving a speech to the Senate, they all ganged up on him and literally tore him apart. Sounds like some weird Caesar stuff from the Ides of March, (laughs) except tearing instead of stabbing. Tearing out his limbs. I mean, who let this guy have a pen or a quill or whatever? Like, (laughs) I'm not sure we're all physically equipped to actually do that. I've heard of tying people between horses and tearing them apart, making the horses run in all different directions. Sorry, your discretion is advised. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, Cassius Dio, obviously he's, he he's just- full of shit. He's full of shit. He likes to just, he's, I like to think of him as like, he's the ancient national inquirer, right? He's the huh, one that's like okay. the tabloid writer. He wants to, he makes everything- all sensational and sensational yeah Mm -hmm. because he's like oh it's gonna it's gonna bring the people in yeah but anyway but there are all kinds of stories in roman history that involve mysteries and the plots and the assassinations and the scheme games you know so there's a lot of stuff going on meanwhile the same thing is happening in ancient greece they're like okay rome we see your political conspiracies and we raise you the paranoia of everybody (laughs) So the playwrights and the orators that Athens is you know, so famed for that we always talk about in our history classes and whatnot, they are writing all these plots and schemes into their content. And it's not just political. We're talking about people's everyday lives, their careers, their reputations, everything ha- can have a conspiracy attached to it that they're writing into their plays and speeches. Now you spread it out from there and you have conspiracies running rampant in the Middle Ages all over Europe. Recently on Instagram, I talked about the Black Death in a a reel, and I didn't have time to get into it because you're only given a minute, but I mentioned that people were scared and looking for a scapegoat for all the illness and death. Jews, the Romani, suspected witches, minorities, essentially, were tortured and killed because of bacteria. Not that they knew it was bacteria yet, but, you know, they're just like, we have to have a reason for this pestilence that has overtaken our land and killing us all. Let's blame it on these people that we are fearful and suspicious of. Right. And then they also blamed black cats. That's where the black cat suspicion came from was the plague because they believed it was the witch's familiar and then it helped them spread the plague. And then also, fun fact, which you probably knew this, during the plague, because of all that superstition, they murdered every cat they could find, which is terrible. And of course, what really carried it were rodents with the fleas and bada bing, bada boom. Wow, Black Plague, because guess what? You killed the one thing keeping them in check. 
Yeah, but yeah, so that was another thing. Superstition led them to all murder the one thing that probably could have helped them keep it in check. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Are you ready for a callback, everybody? So now we've got the Great Fire of London in 1666. Yes, that's a 666 for any of you paying attention. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Sorry. It raged through the city of London for four days. During that time, rumors started to spring up about it being a plot and not just some terrible accident. In a history repeating itself kind of thing, citizens began suspecting the, the monarchy, like King Charles II, of plotting to destroy the city in an eerily similar manner to how Nero supposedly destroyed Rome. There are even a few members of parliament that were using Tacitus and Cassius Dio as sources to say, this same thing happened in Rome. This must be a plot. This must be a thing that our rulers like to do to our city. It happens every 126 years. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And all these big cities have fires. You know, again, like I said earlier, like everything's made out of straw and wood and gasoline. So (laughs) these big cities are burning. That's just what happens. All the conspiracy around the London fire, though, ended when Frenchman Robert Hubert was, or maybe Hubert, was arrested for the crime and confessed that he was part of some cabal of popish spies against England, which sounds cool, you know, if you want a spy novel written, you know, but the confession didn't add up when you compared it to the evidence, but, you know, evidence, schmevidence, we've got our man and he was hanged. (laughs) Don't be silly. This is a thing. (laughs) As our view of the world changed, we learned more about the world itself, the people in it then therefore our conspiracies begin to morph from the local, more familiar level to a national and global scale. The conspiracy theories become more mysterious, more subversive. The enemy becomes bigger and more powerful. And now if the conspiracy involves the church, I mean, holy shit, now you've got people that are powerful that represent God or the gods, depending on what time period and culture you're in, that you're trying to go against. Also, I just realized I said, holy shit, after <laughs> you're going against the church, holy shit. no pun intended. When we get to that epicenter or like that moment where we're saying, okay, this is the history of conspiracy theories, or at least the history of modern conspiracy theories as we understand them today, there are two watershed moments, if you will. And one of them involves religion and a young German law professor named Adam Weishaupt. The year is 1772, and Adam is a professor at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria. He doesn't love it, though. Law is not his passion. His real passion is for intrigue. He loves the secret societies. He wants the fun stuff. Law is not fun for him. And what he says he wants to do is improve society by using logic and reason to dispel religious superstition. Historian John, so this is from the book Suspicious Minds, and uh, historian John Roberts is in the book quoted the same, and I'm going to paraphrase this in the most liberal way, but he was basically like, no, Adam Weishaupt is basically just bored and smart. He's self-absorbed. He thinks he's smarter than everyone else. He's not, you know, this whole, oh, I'm going to change the world. He's just a little bit of a, a goober. Again, that's not what John Roberts says, but that's what I say from his words. Young 24-year-old Adam Weishaupt joins a Masonic lodge, but very soon after he's like, no, you know what? This isn't secret enough for me. They have no political aspirations and the dues are too high. (laughs) Expensive to be a Mason. He starts his own secret society on May 1st, 1776 with himself and four others attending the first meeting. Do you want to take a guess at what it was called? 
say Illuminati, say Illuminati, say Illuminati. Illuminati. Oh, very good, Katie. It's the order of the Illuminati. It's what the $1 bill is modeled after. Don't you know this? <laughs> the goal of the Illuminati, according to Adam Weishaupt, was to, quote, render unto man the importance of the perfection of reason and his moral character, to oppose the wicked designs in the world, to assist against the injustice suffered by the unfortunate and the oppressed, to encourage men of merit, and in general, to facilitate the means of knowing and science, end quote. That, I mean, that sounds nice, right? Doesn't oh, sound I mean, terrible. Sounds nice, yeah. But for those of you who are into true crime and especially into cults, see if the rest of this sets off any alarm bells, okay? So we've got fake names. Everyone's got a fake name that they have to call each other by. There's secret vocabulary and words and sayings, and there has to be complete, absolute, unquestioning obedience to the higher ups. Sounds like something you would make as a middle school girls club. Yeah, that's kind of what this is, basically. Illuminati is a middle school girls club, the mean girls club. It's a complete obedience to Vice Hopton, the most senior members, in order to advance your placement. So in order to move up in this weird hierarchy, which, by the way, is so con- convoluted that only the top senior members actually knew how it worked. There's elaborate initiation rites, part of which require breaking ties with all your family and friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The true political goal, again, only known to those who proved themselves and moved up in rank, was to have a complete yet peaceful transformation of society. They were even trying to uh, bring over Freemasons. So they're infiltrating Masonic lodges and then trying to bring some of their members over. Kind of like, is this not clandestine enough for you? Here you go. You can come over here to us. Now, over the next eight to 10 years, the Illuminati gains members all over Europe, up to about 300 people. But with great growth comes great security risk. And soon the members, particularly those who didn't like Weishaupt and his like complete control, were starting to spill the beans to people outside the society. And when they did it, they did it in a way which exaggerated the hell out of what was actually happening. And it freaked people out. It gets to the point where the rumors get so out of hand that the Bavarian government has to start getting involved. And by 1785, arrests were starting to be made. And so Weishaupt fled the country and the Illuminati hence was no more. But people thought if it was such a, this crazy, deep secret society with all these political aspirations and world dominating views and all this stuff, they must have just gone underground and must be still operating. And so therefore rumors still permeated all through Europe, but then they also get brought to the brand new United States of America. More to come on that in a moment. Then the French Revolution happens. So just as people are still like milling in these rumors, the French Revolution happens and everything in France gets turned upside down. Historian John Roberts makes a really good point in the Suspicious Minds book I I wanted to put here because he says, today we live in a world where people have rights and, you know, the people have power in comparison to historic times, at least. And now all of a sudden people in France have rights and the nobility don't have wealth and power anymore. And so everything has literally just been turned upside down because Europe has had for centuries monarchs and empires who were running their shit and telling them what to do and keeping a thumb on, on the people. And now we have this massive moment for humanity where people actually have a voice and they realize that they can rise up against the ruling class. Now, remember about the fear and uncertainty trying to find order in the chaos? So now we 
have the conspiracy theories that come in. Frenchman Augustine de Barreau, nobleman and Jesuit priest, writes some pamphlets towards the end of this French Revolution, criticizing Enlightenment, Enlightenment philosophy. And he starts to believe that secret societies like the Enlightenment philosophers, Freemasons, Jacobins, and the Illuminati were secretly behind this whole thing. And it was their scheme to overturn society. Scotsman John Robeson, a natural philosophy professor at the University of Edinburgh, thinks the same thing. And he publishes a pamphlet called, all right, you ready for the title? Okay, gotta take a deep breath. Proofs of a conspiracy against all the religions and governments of Europe carried on in the secret meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati, and reading societies, etc., collected from good authorities. <laughs> a goddamn panic at the disco title. Like, have you have you seen their first album? And it's like, oh, yeah. there's a reason Fallout these tables are numbered, honey. You just haven't figured it out yet. You're like, well, what kind of song? Do you <laughs> it's the same bullshit that this guy's pulling. He's like, wouldn't it be really funny if it was the most ridiculous title you've ever heard in your life? It's not funny. It's dumb. It's dumb. And I love the addition at the end. This is actually in the title, Collected from Good Authorities. Yeah. So justification, watch out for that, people. They're just justifying why what they have to say is better than what everybody else is saying. Yeah. And this is common with conspiracy theories throughout the ages. It's like, I know a person who was on the inside, or I know there's this scientist that says that. And if they're a scientist in that field and they should know, you know, things like that, you kind of have like these renegade people who become the, uh, I don't know, like figure for a movement. Because they were on the inside. Yes. So that's, I love the, you know, from good authority bit. And so this is published in about 1789, 1790, that sort of time. It was after Augustine de Barul's pamphlet. Robeson goes on to say that these societies all still exist and are working in secret to overthrow government, religion, and society as a whole. All right. Now here we go. Hop on the little steamship or the, it's not a steamship at this point. We're, we're on a sailboat uh, or whatever. We're on, we're on a boat. It's going to take a long time, but we're going to go to the United States. It is the late 1790s. And Jedediah Morse, who is a minister in Charleston, Massachusetts, is a well-known author of geography textbooks. He, he brings national attention to the Illuminati by suggesting that a secret organization was at work to, quote, root out and abolish Christianity and overturn all civil government. Now, he calls it the Bavarian Illuminati, but it's the same Illuminati that we know and love. But he consistently calls it the Bavarian Illuminati. And good old Jedediah, who has read these various pamphlets from Europe, believes that this Illuminati is working closely with the Thomas Jefferson-led Democratic Republicans, who are the political rivals of the Federalists. So if you need a face to go with the name there, we have John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, who are famous Federalists. And he thinks, you know, this cabal of sorts are working together to pull off some sort of secular-driven clandestine agenda, whatever that agenda might be. That's what's happening. So he thinks, and he gets to the point where he's so worked up about it. He does a sermon. It just scares the pants off his congregation in which he says, the Illuminati is here to quote, abjure Christianity, justify suicide by declaring death and eternal sleep, advocate for sens sensual pleasures agreeable to Epicurean philosophy, decry marriage and advocate a promiscuous intercourse among the sexes. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll is getting brought to you by the Illuminati. Beware, all you God-fearing folks. I That's literally my figured he was just condemning orgies is exactly what I just got from what <laughs> I mean, <laughs> basically. And now soon after, we have Timothy Dwight, who's the president of Yale, 
Yale College, and he publishes a similar account called The Duty of Americans at the Present Crisis, in which he uses quotes from the book of Revelations and the Bible to try to turn the, this new America back to God, warning them against secret societies who are planning to overthrow our freedoms and our religion and our entire moral compass. Some of this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, from this mm-hmm. point, this is where most historians begin with the history of the quote unquote modern conspiracy theory in America and how the United States has had such a long history of a undercurrent of paranoia. A lot of historians will say that, especially in the 19th century, conspiracy theories just ran wild. And that was like the big time for conspiracy theories in America. Side note, um, it's just, it's interesting to note, a lot of people think now with this age of information that we're in, and we have the internet and anyone can post anything, a lot of people think that conspiracy theories have actually gotten worse as we've moved on. And now information is more easily passed on and obtained and can more easily be fucked with. And that's actually not the case. Um, I'm not going to go into it so much, but they, like, they've recorded this over time. Historians and psychologists and stuff have, have said it's actually a little bit more prevalent in the 19th century during the 1800s. And it's actually had a little bit of a dip as we've gotten more to the present day. It's just right now, because I think there's a pandemic and stuff going on, we've had that uptick again in the conspiracy theories, but overall there, there's less belief in them. And looming world war. Again, people are trying to make sense of the chaos. Okay, here we go. Now we're getting in the home stretch here. So we're going to hop back over to Europe. We're going to be on a boat for eight more months. Now I mentioned earlier that there were two watershed moments for conspiracy theories. So the first one was the Illuminati panic. The second one is another clandestine cabal, but unlike the Illuminati, which was real, but had secret faces, which I personally think is why several years ago, everyone was trying to make musicians and celebrities part of the Illuminati. Do you remember that? Beyonce and Lady Gaga were in the Illuminati. Oh, really? But you have to remember, I have not been on social media that long, so I missed a lot of stuff. It's okay. It's not like it's that important to know, to be honest. Oh, okay. It was such a dumb thing, but everyone was basically like, if there was some sort of symbolism in a music video or a hand signal that they made, they're like, oh, well, they that's... still do that. Yeah. And there's lots of yeah. people that use that because they think it's cool or, or because it gets attention, but mm-hmm. it's all good. Yeah. I, that was just a side note that I was just, oh, I wonder if in order to put faces with the Illuminati, oh, yeah. people started doing that. But I could see why, but like, if you think about it, going back to what you said before with the, how it's all rooted in a seed of truth. Like if you look at the whole Epstein thing, well, mm-hmm. of course that would shake people's faith in like these celebrities, these people of power and these people that like have access to do these horrible things. Money. There must be something bigger going on, mm-hmm. right? Logically, wouldn't that make sense to you to again, organize the chaos in your head? Yeah, well, yeah. The whole Epstein didn't kill himself statement. I just, um, met, I wasn't even know. talking about that. I was just even talking about the trafficking, stopping oh, it there. Right. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the whole, that people like even just that little bit that people will make this into a, it's a whole thing. In terms of like, it was, it's, it's even bigger than what we know. It's like a pizza gate yes. kind of thing. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Cause it definitely did happen, but yeah, as you said, but again, that's, but there's your seat of truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I mean, Maybe it is true. Maybe it is bigger than we know. You know, I mean, it kind of sadly and nothing would surprise me in this world these days. I hate to say that that's what the world has done to me. It's just one of those things. It's like I could absolutely without thinking people are crazy. I can see why 
it happens. I'm like, oh yeah, it makes sense. I might not agree with it, but I can absolutely see why people come to those conclusions. Yeah. That's how I am with all of this as well too. There's a few of them like flat earth and the lizard people, the interdimensional lizard people running the world. Like there's a couple of them where I'm like, no, nah, bro, I can't follow you there. I, but pretty much a lot of the rest of them, I can be like, oh, I see where you're coming from because of this experience that you've had or this way of thinking that you have, you know, and I, and again, I'm just like, I don't say that to pat myself on the back. Like, oh, I'm such a, I'm such an empath. I can see, (laughs) I can see everyone's point of view. It's more of just like, I have thin skin and anxiety and I don't like to argue with people is probably what it stems from. I don't like the confrontation, but no, I I, I love to argue with people. So (laughs) I, I just can go, oh, okay. I understand because of this or that, that's where you're coming from. So you're going to get a whole lot of fence sitting with me if you're trying to kind of see where I land on these. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. The second cabal that we're looking at here, this, the second watershed moment is actually completely fictional, but it had real faces. So it's kind of the opposite of, of the Illuminati, real society, secret faces, completely fictional society, but real faces. Now we have an even more apocalyptic 80-page pamphlet called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Are you familiar with any oh of like boy. the Zion, the Zionists or like any of the Zion stuff? It sounds them? familiar. It, okay. I'm pretty sure I listened to a podcast on it before or they were touched on. I think what it was is that there was a true crime event that was related to them that I heard in a podcast that touched briefly on them. Okay. To be honest with you, I get my cults mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) So in this pamphlet, it talks about this huge conspiracy that's been going on for centuries and came, oh, 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 so close to completion. Hook, we've hooked you in, right? We've hooked you in as the reader. It is a supposed confession from the conspirators themselves. It's the secret minutes from a supreme worldwide Jewish council called the Elders of Zion. Somehow, Somehow the minutes were leaked and they were printed at the turn of the century in Russian newspapers. It was this Russian spy who infiltrated said meeting of the elders, or maybe he was sleeping with the mistress of one of the elders. Oh, no, no. Maybe it was a transcript stolen from an attendee at the meeting. Oh, no, 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 no. Actually, no, I think actually it was because the spy somehow got into the elders of Zion's secret archives of documents. Uh Aha. Ah. Basically, whatever story you hear, there's a different way. So those are yeah. all like, things. oh, he was sleeping with the mystery. Oh, he found his way, you know, because this is all fictionalized. So the elders, as this pamphlet would have it, are striving for world domination and that people electing officials, democracy, it's too much for the simple lowly people who have to decide on their leaders who are going to like protect them and care for them and lead them in their countries and whatever. And that they need to put the complete control of the world into the safe and good hands of a Jewish dictatorship. The protocols were outlined in graphic detail and how this new world would look and how it's going to happen. And there are some elements that are just vague enough that allow you to fill in the blanks of bad events that happen. So any bad thing, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense because X, Y, Z happened, or that's what this, this thing says it's going to do. And so you can pin any war, any bad thing, basically that happened on this elders of Zion cabal, they're in control or they're trying to take control, but it does have enough detail in it to kind of like shock and trigger an emotional response. So it's, it's perfect in that just vague enough, but have enough details to keep people coming into it. Really all it is, 
is just a horrible and fictional, I'll remind you, completely fictional piece of anti-Semitic trash is what it is. So it's- what crack pipe is this person? <laughs> Have you ever seen World War II? Have you heard the little thing called the Holocaust? Like well, there's been a lot of countries where Jews are not welcome. I was like sitting here. I was like, wow, that's the most like opposite I've ever heard of anything Jewish ever. Well, no, that's ex- this actually plays exactly into that anti-Semitic fear and hate that have, has been perpetrated towards those people by places in the world. So here, let me get to that. Using Jewish folks as a scapegoat, unfortunately, is nothing new in history. So to all of our Jewish friends Popular, in the folk circle, it's like, here, you can have an extra puff of the joint and an extra glass of the Jack Daniels or whatever, because it's been going on for such a long time. And at the turn of the 20th century, there's this fresh new wave of anti-Semitism that's going around. And so the timing of this pamphlet's discovery and its printing was just mwah, perfection. I mean, and that's because it was written for this time. Someone wrote it. <laughs> Someone uses anti-Semitism and wrote it out. And the stupid thing ends up getting republished all over the place, usually under some different names with a couple new details added. One scholar in 1939 actually was like, I believe that the Elders of Zion pamphlet has actually been distributed and published so much that it's second only to the Bible. Wow. That was his thoughts. Now, a couple of these other pamphlets were like that were renamed were International Jew, the world's foremost problem, yikes, which was published by wow. the, in the United States by none other than uh, Henry Ford. Yes, of Model, Model T Ford Company Motors. Yeah. I've heard a lot of things about Ford, though, that he was racist too, as yeah, well. He, he was kind of a problematic guy. The other one is printed in Nazi Germany and it's called The Jewish Antichrist and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was published in 1938 in Nazi Germany. That doesn't surprise me. Yikes, yikes, yikes all around. With all that mass distribution and hype, it just blows up. But by 1920, there's a German scholar named Joseph Stanjek, S-T-A-N-J-E-K, Stanjek. And he comes forward and is like, huh, that's interesting. This pamphlet is wildly similar to a book from 1868 called Biarritz, B-I-A-R-R-I-T-Z, by Hermann Gochta. G-O-E-D-S-C-H-E. As more people looked into it, it was found that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was almost completely plagiarized off this book. And so it was debunked. They're like, this isn't a real thing. Some asshole just published this pretending like it was a real thing to perpetuate shitty ideas. The asshole just decided to write (laughs) this shit down like it was his original bullshit. But despite all that, however, it didn't stop people from still believing in it. Let's bring in that psychology magnifying glass again. We have anti-Semites who get their hands and their eyes on the protocols of the elders of Zion, and they have that confirmation bias of their belief. They're like, oh, yes, Jews are the root of everything that's going on in the world. This thing is telling me what I believe to be true. Even when presented with the strong evidence to the contrary, they then double down on their convictions because they need to have a reason for their hate. (laughs) right? You know, they need to have a face for their fear and confusion when things go bad. And so here's this quote unquote proof that the Jewish people are trying to overthrow life as we know it and take everything over. But that's not true at all. There we have the basic overview of the history of conspiracy theories, particularly the modern conspiracy theory, as well as the psychology of why we believe them in the first place. So I had to do a little bit of like an intro to conspiracy theories because I went too deep again, it would be 
really long and it would also turn us into a different podcast, but it's really, really cool. I loved just the sort of the ripple effect. I mean, it's one preacher it's, you know, or a few hateful people or paranoid noble that's been disgraced. It's just like one or two people who just say something and put something out into the ether. And it ripples out because they are in a position of knowledge, power, authority, whatever it might be, people are going to listen to them. It sets off this ripple effect that really plays into a lot of confirmation bias that people have. So, you know, so they hear things that jive with what they think about something already. And they're like, oh, that must be true. That there must be some sort of secret organization that's trying to take everything over. It was really interesting because now as I'm digging, you know, going forward, my research is continuing. I had to pull myself out of the rabbit hole, but it was really cool to kind of just like a conspiracy theorist, draw that thread of being able to be like, oh, that's really interesting that this happened and a very similar thing happened at this time. And now we can see where repeating elements of conspiracy theories crop up over time. Like there is nothing that new about most of them. They still use those same elements, that same psychology. And I thought that was just really fascinating too, to see where that came from. And so over the rest of the month here, again, following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is the biggest one. I would say if you have Instagram, go there first and foremost, cause that's where everything goes. Sometimes things don't always transfer over to Facebook as well. Like Facebook doesn't always like the videos. It's like, oh, we have to do it this way or that way, or it won't post. There's a whole like thing with it, you know, (laughs) stupid Facebook. So yeah, come to Instagram if you can, please. All of our social media is going to be linked in our uh, show notes. You can just directly go there, but we're going to be going through different conspiracies. A lot of them are voted on by the people themselves in social media, by our secret cabal, the smoke circle. (laughs) They have given me the conspiracies to to talk about. We've got some fun ones. The cabal, the cabal of our hearts. And so we're going to be, you know, sprinkling those in over the course of the month, just because it's fun and we're going into spring and we're just going to have a little fun with things. So head on over there. But that is the history, brief history of the modern conspiracy theory. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thank you for bringing the psychology of it to it. That was great. (laughs) That was like very like, oh, absolutely. Very mind opening. Once we can really understand more, at least, of why people think the way they think it helps us be able to tackle those issues because I think it's really easy. Again, the in-group and the out-group, right? It's really easy to say, well, they're wrong because this, this, this. Right. They're idiots because of this, this, this. They're sheeple because of this, this, this. And especially now social media, you get on a a little debate with somebody. There's no winning. There's no, people are so entrenched in, in their psychology. So I really enjoyed it. And I really like Rob Brotherton's approach to conspiracy theories. He is a, is he a doctor? I should probably look that up before I start talking there, but he is a, is a professor. His, oh yeah, he has his doctorate. Yeah. He special, he's a, a psychologist, but he specializes particularly in conspiracy theories. And that's what he talks about and writes books on and he teaches on it at universities. I like that he, he could very easily put on the expert hat and come on in and do that whole thing. Yeah, go ahead. He did, he did Suspicious Minds, right? He did Suspicious Minds. He also has another book called Bad News, I think is what it's yes, called. I which see is about, it. Like, Why We news. Fall for Fake News. Yeah. Uh, so he's an academic psychologist and a science writer. So yeah. yeah. He's pretty so cute he too, a just a side note, yeah. but um, which makes no <laughs> difference to the man's brain. I'd be an asshole. No, but yes. Well, I was just saying, yes, he is a, has, he's a doctor. Yeah. 
Thank you. But I, I really liked his nuanced approach to it because he could come in and be like, this is this and that is that. And you know, your brain's messed up or something like that. You know, he could, he could come in and just be a jerk. Right. But he yeah. is really like his whole thing was like the back of the book, suspicious mind says we're all conspiracy theorists. Some of us just hide it better than others. Even in his interview with Adam Conover, he <laughs> Adam Conover just really wanted him to like show his hand in some way. Like, well, what, what do you think? He's like, I not here to give rights or wrongs on any of them because it's so easy to see where people can come from with some of these. And he says the same thing I did about it, where he's like, there's some of them, like the lizard people where I'd say, yeah, that's a little bit, (laughs) he's like, that's, that's a a bit out there. That so hard. You would not believe how many people you might Mm. believe it. How many people believe that? I mean, Doctor Who does a has a whole story arc on it too, which is kind of oh, interesting. Really? Yeah, it's kind of fun. They do a whole thing on it too, so it's just kind of one of those. Sometimes even it's really interesting to me when these conspiracy theories, which are supposedly this whole underground thing, get brought to pop culture. That's always very interesting when that happens. And yeah, and that's when we're seeing, especially now in the present day, we're seeing what we originally thought conspiracy theorists were were like. Um, middle-aged white men in a basement wearing their tinfoil hats we kind of think of a certain kind of person and that's not the case I mean just as many women are conspiracy theorists there are plenty of people of color this goes through the whole world it's not just like a, a white American or Eurocentric thing this goes across the whole world because there's scary stuff happening all over that we want to put right <laughs> we want to put reasoning on we're seeing people in the public now these days, we're even having, we even have like elected officials in America who are outward, they're megaphones for conspiracy theories. And, yep. and we're seeing this now. So that makes us think, oh my gosh, conspiracy theories are getting completely out of hand. They're more popular now than they were before. And that's when it's thankfully- more easily accessible. Yeah. And, and so we're having more familiar faces and popular famous faces that are vocalizing these things so it makes us think yeah. oh well it must be true or it must be more popular and it may or may not be but it was that was kind of an interesting thing to read in a, in a few of the articles and books that I read for this is that people were like it's not necessarily more prevalent now it was actually more prevalent in the 19th century but because news is so in our face all the time these days we it might notice it more much more yeah so I hope you guys all found that interesting and would love to hear what you think, or if there's anything, if it's, if it's the month of April, 2022, um, you know, you can send us an email or a message and say, oh, can you do a video on this conspiracy theory? Cause that'd be cool. I'm yeah, purposefully steering away from vaccines, 9-11, Sandy Hook. Like I'm, I'm purposely steering away from like real bummer ones that people are hot button topics or involve children pizza gate i'm not going to do that one so i hope everybody enjoyed it thank you so much for coming into our smoke circle tonight and hanging out with us and talking about some weird shit we love it we love you wherever you are in the world just know i'm giving you a hug it's a socially distanced hug but it's like our hearts are touching do you feel that i don't want to freak anybody out but i also want to like get close that's from us to you we love you so much and um it's like an awkward family goodbye is what you're basically describing to me we're given a, a weird midwestern goodbye it's going to linger it's going to be overly friendly that's how we're going to do it and it's going to be extremely awkward mm-hmm. and it'll probably happen a few more times we'll probably say goodbye a few times before we actually leave uh katie is there anything that you needed to share with the people before we go thank you for bringing that to us that was a good one 
Well, good. I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun. I hope everybody did too. And with that said, have a great couple weeks. You know, we will see you in uh, two weeks from now. Happy April Fool's Day. Don't, you know, eat the sugar thinking it's salt or whatever it is that people do to each other these days. I don't know. You can tell your Check your sink sprayer. I've been gotten by that one a couple of times. Yeah. And then we'll see you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, get money, get high, give love. And Katie, hug your local conspirator. (laughs) Touch their heart with your heart. (laughs) Let them feel it, but also just make it weird. Make it awkward. Touch their heart. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing on whatever platform you get your pods. It really does help us so much and also helps others find us and join our weekly history party. As for the socials, you can find us on Instagram at Hightailing History and on Facebook at Hightailing Through History or with the username at Hightailing History. You can contact us at HightailingHistoryPod at gmail.com. Have a great week, folks. Thank you.